treason, false prophets, and lots and lots of political machinations. Those and more happy topics this week on The Backdrop. Hey everyone, Curtis here. This is the Backdrop Podcast for Pomona Valley Church, where we are continuing our journey through the book of Jeremiah. This week we are going to be focusing on chapters 26 through 28, so we're skipping ahead a bit here, but we'll come back to chapters 24 and 25 in future weeks because of how well they fit topically with chapter 29, so we'll treat them all together. Our chapters this week are the last ones of what's basically the first half of the book. And then with chapter 29, and especially chapters 30 and 31 and 32, we enter into a whole new phase of Jeremiah's message. But for now, Jeremiah is closing out this first part with a bang. Let's start in chapter 26, which, as I mentioned in my sermon this weekend, is likely a retelling from a more narrative point of view of the same incident that we saw in chapter 7. In the earlier version, the focus is on the message. In this version, the focus is on what happened as a result of that message. Now, to set the scene a bit here, we are told that this happens at the beginning of the reign of King Jehoiakim, which would have been somewhere around 609, 608, 607 BC, something like that. So, some historical background to help us get our bearings. In 609 BC, the beginning of King Jehoiakim's reign, the Assyrian Empire, long the dominant power in the region, fell. That same year, and not coincidentally, the armies of Egypt marched north to take advantage of this power vacuum. At the same time, again, not coincidentally, an emerging power in Babylon began to exert more of its own influence. In other words, Judah and their long-reigning, popular, and good King Josiah are caught in the middle. The armies of Egypt are marching through their territory, and Josiah leads a group of other nearby nations to fight them. Their side is routed, King Josiah is killed, and his son, Jehoiahaz, comes to power. Jehoiahaz lasts three months on the throne until Pharaoh Necho from Egypt, presumably on his way back south again, comes back through Judah, doesn't like that Jehoiahaz is on the throne, gets rid of him, and puts his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. This is in 609 BC. Meanwhile, Babylon is gaining in power to the point that four years later, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was at that point the crown prince, leads the Babylonian army south to the city of Carchemish, which is on the Euphrates River near the border of modern-day Syria and Turkey, so just a bit north of Israel. And there he soundly defeats the Egyptian armies and solidifies control of the entire area north of Egypt for Babylon. That is, again, four years into Jehoiakim's reign in Judah. So this is the kind of turmoil that is going on at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. And you can imagine the uneasiness that was probably omnipresent in Judah at this point. Furthermore, this chapter tells us that Jeremiah is to go and speak to all the cities of Judah at the temple, to all the people coming to worship there. This likely indicates that one of the major yearly festivals is going on. Otherwise, it's unlikely that people from all over Judah would be at the temple. In other words, Jeremiah is going to a location that is the heart of the self-identity of Judah during one of the major yearly celebrations of that self-identity, while that self-identity is under serious threat from the powerful nations around them. And the message that Jeremiah is bringing into that cauldron is, this self-identity is about to come crashing down. It didn't go well. 
One commentator I read compared this to someone walking through downtown Los Angeles on July 4th, 1942, saying something like, This city and all its people will be lit on fire by the Japanese just like they lit fire to our ships in Pearl Harbor. The one tweak I would make to that is that you have to imagine that instead of a great power like America, Judah is completely outgunned and surrounded by great powers, which kind of only enhances the, the point. To the people in the temple, it would have been clear Jeremiah was committing treason at the worst possible time in the worst possible place. And so the people react about how you might expect. They seize him and say, you shall definitely die. I think something very similar would have happened in our July 4th analogy, actually. So what we have is that the word of Yahweh is silenced in Yahweh's temple. Ironic, yes, but hardly an isolated incident over the long checkered history of God's people. What words from God today, I wonder, are not welcome in the places where we claim to revere the word of God? How can we continually work as God's people to hear those words and not to react hostily to them? In any event, much like the case would be hundreds of years later with Jesus, the chief priests and religious leaders stoke resentment amongst the crowds to try and get Jeremiah executed for his treasonous words. Jeremiah speaks up and says, Hey, I'm just speaking the words of Yahweh. It's up to you if you want to add my innocent blood to all your other crimes. And then we are told that the public sentiment swings the other way. Specifically, we're told that the officials, which probably refers to the various elders of the clans and villages, prevent Jeremiah's execution. One commentator I saw wondered if this might be a sign that the elders from the far-flung villages of Judah had less loyalty to the monarchy and the temple, which was centered in Jerusalem, than the priests did, and if those competing loyalties might be part of the argument that's going on here over Jeremiah's fate. But the elders bring up the precedent of the prophet Micah, who had been active during the time of Hezekiah a few generations earlier. Micah's message was almost identical to Jeremiah's, they say, and they quote um, what looks an awful lot like Micah 3.12. And Hezekiah didn't put Micah to death despite that message. And look, Jerusalem survived. So if we don't put Jeremiah to death, therefore, Jerusalem will survive. The problem here, of course, is that they have drawn the wrong causal relationship it was the repentance of the people in Hezekiah's day that allowed them to survive, not their not having killed Micah. And then the chapter ends by telling us that Ahikam, son of Shaphan, was decisive in protecting Jeremiah from death. This is interesting because in 2 Kings chapter 22, Josiah sends Shaphan to the temple, where the priest Hilkiah informs him that he has found the scroll of the Torah. Shaphan brings the scroll back to Josiah, reads it to him, and this sets off the religious reforms that Josiah makes, and his sons abandoned, to rededicate Judah to Yahweh. In fact, Shaphan and his son Ahikam are specifically mentioned, along with a couple other royal officials, as the ones leading these reforms. Reforms that align completely with the message we have seen in Jeremiah. And now that same Ahikam shows up protecting Jeremiah. Then, even more interesting, in 2 Kings 25, we read the story of Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem and the temple, taking the people into exile, and setting up a man named Gedaliah as governor. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, is now going to be the governor of what is now a province of Babylon's empire. And Gedaliah's message is strikingly similar to Jeremiah's that we will see in chapter 29. Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Stay in the land and serve the king of Babylon, that it may go well for you. 
Unfortunately, within the year, Gedaliah has been assassinated and many of the people who are left flee to Egypt, taking Jeremiah against his will, as we will see later in the book, along with them. So what we can see, a little blurrily maybe, are the political machinations that are going on behind the scenes in all these stories. Josiah, along with his trusted officials, Shaphan and his son Ahikam, institute religious reforms that just so happen to also amount to political rebellion against Assyrian rule. We are not going to worship your gods anymore. This, right around the time the Assyrian Empire is crumbling. Jeremiah, we can assume, was a vocal supporter of those efforts, because they are exactly the types of reforms he has been advocating for, for religious and ethical, not political, reasons. Then, when Egyptian forces try to make their way through Judah to help the Assyrian armies against the upstart rebels from Babylon, Josiah opposes them, because he is anti-Assyrian, thus aligning himself with the emerging Babylonian side in this fight. Josiah is killed, and his son is installed by the Egyptians as the new king, and he, not coincidentally, flips to the other side of this, supporting Egypt and opposing Babylon. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is telling the people to submit themselves to Babylon, which is not the party line of the current king, so he gets in trouble, and his old friend Ahikam has apparently managed to retain some influence under this new king and saves him. Then, after Judah rebels against Babylon twice, Babylon finally finishes the job and conquers Jerusalem. They appoint as governor a man who, from their perspective, is now a third-generation pro-Babylonian voice, but then the other side kills him and flees to their old allies, Egypt. There's an ongoing political battle going on, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes right out in the open in Jeremiah, running parallel to Jeremiah's message. Serve the king of Babylon is not a neutral statement politically. It was Jeremiah taking sides on the key political fight in his day. And in fact, this pops right out into the next chapter. Before we get to that, though, one quick note. Some early manuscripts begin chapter 27 the same way chapter 26 begins, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. This is almost certainly a mistake that a scribe made at some point along the way in copying these chapters of the Bible. Because in chapter 27, in fact, two verses after this, Zedekiah is king, not Jehoiakim, and no time has passed. There are actually a few other ancient manuscripts that align with verse 3 and the rest of this chapter, saying that Zedekiah is the king in question here, not Jehoiakim. And since Jehoiakim doesn't make any sense in this context, it's pretty safe to say that some poor, tired scribe, after spending a few long hours copying chapter 26, just got his kings mixed up as he began chapter 27. But in any case, back to the political issues. In chapter 27, we get Jeremiah making some yokes. God tells him to go crash a meeting at the palace, one that seems to have happened around 594 or 593 B.C., The kings of several of the small nations in the area around Judah are getting together to talk through, okay, what are we going to do here? Babylon wants us to pay tribute to them or be destroyed. If we stay separate, there's no way we can win. So what if we band together, refuse to pay, and take our chances? And in barges Jeremiah with his yokes knocking lamps over and making a big scene, and his message is clear. You all are going down a path where you will be wearing Nebuchadnezzar's yoke. The yoke, incidentally, was a common symbol of being forced to submit to the power of a king. We actually see this same image elsewhere in the Bible. What's interesting here is, as I was hinting at before, this is a wholly political statement. 
Jeremiah is not telling the other kings, repent and turn back to Yahweh or else you'll be wearing this yoke. He is saying, serve the king of Babylon and you'll live. Accepting this yoke is the one way forward for you all. I think it's kind of interesting. God sends Jeremiah to advise the political deliberations of foreign kings. We've seen a lot of Jeremiah's message in terms that we would probably characterize as religious or ethical before we would term it political. Although in the ancient world, those are not easily separable concepts. But this, this is purely political. God warning the surrounding nations about the inevitable political consequences of their decision. Part of me does wonder if Jeremiah's political statements, like here, might have caused people to miss his main message. Oh, you're just spreading pro-Babylonian propaganda, so of course you would speak out against the king and the temple, who are anti-Babylonian. Why should we listen to you on matters of religion and ethics when you're just a shill for the pro-Babylonian political faction? I think that for us, there are kind of parallel warnings here. On the one hand, as we talked about a few weeks back, Jeremiah is clearly political. The message of God in this chapter is for Jeremiah to make a political statement. That is his job as a prophet here. To miss the word of God because we have a preconceived notion that God only speaks to religious issues or individual ethical issues is a big mistake. A mistake the nations here make when they decide, yep, we're going to rebel against Babylon. And then they're destroyed about six years after this warning. But the parallel warning, I think, for us to think about is the danger that our message our life as the people of God might get subsumed under a political agenda and the religious and ethical aspects get lost. I wonder to what degree that happens for Jeremiah here, even despite his best efforts. It certainly has happened today, as on the one hand, the conservative evangelical camp has been wholly subsumed under the banner of the Republican Party to the point of supporting nakedly anti-Christian policies in the name of Jesus, And then on the other hand, the liberal mainline congregations have been wholly subsumed under liberal justice causes with only the vaguest kind of hand-wavy references to Jesus sometimes. And so our culture, and this is borne out in survey after survey, sees evangelical Christians as standing for pro-gun, anti-immigrant, anti-women's rights, anti-LGBTQ rights causes, while it sees issues of justice as purely secular. We need to see how we can effectively engage in the political realm, as required by our allegiance to Jesus, while not being subsumed under the political and losing sight of Jesus. And that's a real challenge. For now, one final note from chapter 28. Part of Jeremiah's rebuttal there to Hananiah, the false prophet, is, in effect, all the true prophets from our past came with messages of warning and destruction. So any prophet saying, hey, everything's all good, you should probably be suspicious of. The burden of proof for Jeremiah is on the prophet bringing soothing words. This is an interesting point because in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, the two tests of whether a prophet is true or false are, first, are they telling you to move towards Yahweh or away from Yahweh? And second, do their predictions actually come true? Because obviously, if they're from Yahweh, they'll be true. But as we said last week, the answers to those questions aren't always immediately obvious. Jeremiah is kind of adding a third criteria here. Be skeptical if they're saying happy things. Now, I think this is, in some ways, actually a variation of the first criteria from Deuteronomy. Are they bringing you towards Yahweh or away? Because while there are some prophets who bring words of hope and are from Yahweh, that hope is always on the other side of repentance. You are walking away from God, 
turn around and you'll find the hope you're looking for. But you have to turn around first. Hope without the turning is a false message. And I think that's what Jeremiah is getting at here. The road to hope is not easy. It is not obvious. It's not assured. Jesus said it slightly differently, that the way to life is hard and narrow and many miss it. So yes, God has a message of hope for people. The gospel is good news. It is life-giving. And sometimes, both in Jeremiah's day and our own, people claiming to bring a message from God will use that true thing, but miss the part that makes it true in the first place. Life and good news are available to all of us when we put our trust in God, when we follow Jesus and walk the path towards God. It is a hard path, a narrow path, one that it is so easy to stray off of. And we will. And that's okay, provided we hear the message to turn around and come home. And so prophets bring words of warning and destruction, not because the hope isn't true, but because the hope is only true if we're walking the right way. One of the scholars I was reading put it this way, God's eternal will is for blessing and life, always. God's eternal will is for blessing and life. But sometimes God's temporary, circumstantial will can be for judgment. Why? Because the judgment is part of the turning around. God's eternal will for us to experience blessing in life can only come true if we turn around and walk towards the blessing and the life instead of away from it. Without the turning, it's nothing but false hope from a false prophet. And that's as good a place as any to stop for today. Thanks for listening to The Backdrop. We hope to see you this Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific time on Zoom. There's a link on our website, PomonaValleyChurch.org, that will take you there. And you can also find on the website a couple questions to help with reflection or discussion after this podcast. So that's all for today. Until next time, bye. Bye.